Are you ready to learn? Because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information. Make sure and listen all the way to the end to get help and support. So let's start with the best audio experience. Hello, good people. Welcome to our show. Bad people, welcome to our show. Anyone who want to learn more about building and scaling SaaS and e-commerce, welcome. Today we are going to discuss how you can do it. We can share practical tips because it's not like how to learn. It's more how you can execute all our tips. I'm so excited to discuss this topic with Jimmy Kim. How are you? Hey, what's going on? Thanks for having me here. Yeah, big pleasure. I want to learn more about that. I check out your profile. I know you're super active to share value. Jimmy, before we start, just tell more about yourself, experience, background, and anything that can help our listeners to learn more about you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll start from the I'll start from the t- bottom uh, up, I guess, uh, and I'll tell you about who I, where I come from, and who I am. So I'm a, a first generation immigrant. I moved here from Korea when I was really young, and uh, I've had the good pleasure of uh, you know having an entire journey. My first life my first career started actually off in the car business that's where i actually started i washed cars i sold cars i financed cars and eventually i was selling uh i was uh, managing three saturn stores at the age of 25 one being a top 10 in the nation so like it was a really fun experience uh growing up there and that like led me to my next career i talk about and the next career was i knew that there was this thing called online this digital business this is back in 2008 i ta- partnered up with somebody and uh he told me and taught me about email ultimately and what the power was. And it, that's when I learned something special. And the cool thing was very simple. I learned that with the power of email, with the power of a list, the power of a tribe, the power of people who are opting into you, well, they could provide you with this infinite amount of uh, feedback, money, different things that could happen. So like I learned a lot about that and I broke into that, helped this guy. He taught me a lot of stuff around it. I learned, I taught him stuff around operations and things I learned. And it led me to kind of starting my next journey, which was to start my first business. So my first business that I started off was, uh, it started off as an affiliate marketer. So I was just literally making money as a middleman doing affiliate marketing that evolved into teaching people how, what, what I was doing to make the money that I was doing, which evolved into a software company. So, uh, one, two, three kind of occurred there. And while that was all occurring, the bigger part was it, I invested into this little retail store. It was just a retail brick and mortar store. I invested some money to cover PO for a partner or friend at that time. And I looked in the business and said, Hey, like we can go do something cool with this. And we're going to do this magical thing. This is like 2012 and say, we're going to take your store online and we're going to go spin up a Shopify store, go build this thing. And we're going to go build this thing and take it online. And we did that. We went from this boutique clothing store where we sold men's and women boutique from third parties to creating our own D2C brand, boutique, cut and sew, clothing, uh, men's streetwear. And we really figured out a lot of things back then and uh, was scaling that too. So I scaled those businesses and that all led to this one thing that happened, which is today, which is during that time, email was still our primary driver of revenue. It was what made us money. And the opportunities of tools that were out there at that time was either MailChimp or Bronto back at that time. And we knew that we couldn't use the power that we wanted at Bronto for the cost. And so we put some money together as good entrepreneurs and we built this little tool. It wasn't even called Sendlane when we first started. It was just a tool, the, the email tool that we used, that we started to send. So for four years, we, myself and the two co-founders, we made a lot of money together. That's really all we did with this tool. And then fast forward 2017, that's when the light bulb hit. I'm exiting my uh, e-commerce company. I'm selling my other business for assets because I'm I'm done with it. I'm bored of it. I want to go do something cool. And I looked at Sendlane and said, you know what? It's time to go all in on this thing. I remember still it was September 2017. I said, it's time to go build. So what did I do? 
first, I knew there was nothing else that I could do except make money because I needed to fund the company. So over the next 12 months, I just sold. I pushed. I knew our use case. I knew our user profile. It was me, someone that would be following someone like me, a little bit more hacky, a little bit early stage because the product wasn't there, but went out and sold it and sold a bunch of it and made enough money to get to our seed round. And so in 2018, we raised our first seed round. And the idea was to rebuild a brand new platform, the platform of the future. The idea that we had was not that we wanted to build email. I wanted to build the future of marketing, which is the unification of the story. Because the number one pain point I experienced as a merchant was not the fact that I didn't love the email tool, but the more bigger pain point was the fact that we use so many freaking tools. And now we call this a tech stack. And I think it's weird that we have to rely on so many tools in order to accomplish our job. And a lot of those tools need to be working together. So we went to go raise money there, go raise some money, figured it out. And then in, uh, we launched back out in early 2021 and it allowed us to get onto market, prove some things out, start selling people and allowed us to raise our series A. And since then we've raised our series B and series C at this point. And we've been able to continue on that trajectory where we're carving out a market share in a market where we're competing against multiple billion dollar companies and we face them head to head right now. We take from multiple at the same time. So like our story is really weird because we're not here to attack one competitor, though there's a main competitor. It's Clavio. Uh, they're our main competitor. I look at Attentive, Postscript, Yatpo, all of these billion dollar companies that are out there like sitting there and, you know, has that market share. That's who we take from. And often we're bringing multiple of them together under one roof. And that's really our story is we give you the power all of them have, but all in under one roof, under one experience with a lower bill, better time, better service. And we literally, uh, you know, ha have figured out who our customer is as well, too. And, you know, we serve a very focused middle market business as well, too. It's a million to $100 million DSC brand. That's really what we focus on today. So it's been a really interesting journey. I, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I skipped a billion things in there. But, you know, today we are a remote company since uh, since, pan since the pandemic. Uh, we went from a San Diego-based company to a fully remote company. Still, my team mostly sits here in San Diego, including myself. However, we are a remote team, about 70 people. We're all over the United States, different people, but our team is really engineering, marketing, customer service function focused now more than ever. And, you know, of course we have our go to markets with sales and marketing, but really, you know, a lot of our sales and marketing relates around just, you know, having a great product, great market noise, great social noise, and being able to drive a lot of our business. So that's kind of our top level kind of story. And I'll kind of pause there, man. I probably shared a lot. Yeah, great story. I love it. Awesome, awesome. Jimmy, I want to ask you about uh, how you started. It's interesting. You know, I have a lot of students in my network. Someone can wash cars. Someone can be in uh, Korea or any other countries, India, Ukraine, around the world. Someone in the US. So, But uh, many of them have this dream, you know, to start a company, a successful company, when they can compete in one day with billion dollar company. So can you tell how to do it, how to start, how to, uh, I mean, like to make this first step and open this door? <laughs> Dude, it's, uh, I know I always laugh. I'm like, could I start another company? Here, here's what I always laugh about. Could I start another company? I, no, I could never do it. But the moment I, something happens with this company, meaning I exit, whatever, I'm going to start another company. And so if I'm going back to start another company, here's what it really comes down to. And I've, I've learned a lot of things over the last uh, multiple companies that I've built and the things I think about. The number one problem I think that most people think about when, I, when you start a company, and this is what I would do, is I need, you need to truly validate what you are building and that people will pay you for it. Whatever it might be, though, it's a product, it's a physical or digital or SaaS, whatever it might be, you've got to validate you know what you're going to build. So there's number one. 
Two, you've got to know your North Star. You really got to know what you're building for and who you're building for and like stay true to that vision and not get swayed too fast. And then the third thing that I think about often is like, you know, how to execute on that. And that's really the hardest thing of it, right? It's like, what do I do? Well, how do I start? Well, you got to figure out your strengths and weaknesses. Me, I wasn't a technical co-founder. I'm still not a technical founder. Like I don't know. I can do product. I can uh, read code. I can learn. To, I know how to talk to it, but I couldn't code a damn line of code. I couldn't give you, well, I take it back. I can line basic lines of code that probably are things that you learn when you're first starting coding, but that's about it. Right. Um, and the thing is I was able to go find and recruit the smartest people that I could go recruit by telling the story and the vision and bringing great people in. And my CTO who joined me in 2019, right after we raised that money, he's still here today. And he's been, he's been the best CTO that I could have ever gone out and found. Right. And that's really what it comes down to is finding the alignment, finding the right people, finding the right people and bringing them into business to supply you with the powers that you don't have, right? So once you have that, that comes with experience, and then it starts with just figuring it out. A, do people want my product? And B, will people pay for it? And the big thing I tell people is like, if I were to do this all over again, I would literally make a web page with what I wanted to sell. And then I would call a couple people that I know that I want to sell to and try to sell them and see if I can get their credit card without ever, ever actually having a product. And once I feel that they would have actually paid me or I might even collect money, then I might go and say, now I can go build that product. Because I think too often people build without the understanding that just because there's a problem does not mean people will pay you for it. It just simply means that there's a problem. And sometimes the ideas are not the right way. So that's what I would do right now. If I were to give advice to anyone early start, it's really just make sure that there's a market for it and make sure they really want it and make sure there's a real problem. Now, me, where I jumped into a crowded market, it's, I was absolutely dumb. And I, I look back and even when I was rating my seed round and I talked to hundreds of VCs, they're like, it's a crowded space. It's a crowded space. Me, I didn't know. I was naive, right? I'm a founder. We're naive about these things. But the reality is, if I would have stepped back and looked at it, I might have not built it because I might have been smarter about it because I would have realized, dude, this is a really hard place to be. And it's taken six short years for me to get from A to B to basically break through the market and start having the product market fit and the updates that we need as well, too. So nice. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I would say. You you have patience. You have patience in hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, Jimmy, I want to ask about uh, email marketing. Um, I remember uh, once I listened to audio podcast with Gary Vee, and he told when he started email marketing in two thousand, uh, he got like ninety nine percent of open rate. You know, <laughs> almost a hundred percent. Today it's hard. It's hard because every single person can get plus 100 emails a day. I get a lot of them, most of them spam. You know, uh, they don't know. Uh, people who send these messages don't know anything about me, just send the spam, you know. And uh, the best way where um, I lead all these emails to my spam inbox, they can spend time together, uh, rest in peace. But, you know, I want to uh, ask you about personalization. Can you tell how to personalize this experience? Because in my job, I use a lot of emails. I use in PR, I use in uh, outreach, in link building, in finding customers. Almost everything we did, we do it in email. So can you tell how, how to personalize experience to increase open rate and, and any other stuff? Yeah, I think the problem that people have often is when they think about personalization, they think about relevant words, names, information. But what you need to be actually thinking about is intent and learning about behaviors and understanding who those people are. So here, here's how I look at an email campaign, right? And you've talked about, I mean, this goes pretty broadly if you're thinking about anywhere from e-commerce or to even a SaaS company. The reality is very simple. You've got your audience, 
You've got your message, right? The problem that happens, number one problem that happens is your message and your audience don't align. And what I mean by that is very simple. You pull an audience of, let's say, marketers, right? And you believe that these marketers have this problem. And then you go out and sit there and make this craft this message that's generic enough or it has some personalization of like little burbs and snippets to fit those people. But often that mismatch is happening often. And it's the same thing with e-commerce or anything else. Knowing your audience is probably step number one. Like who is your audience and is there really a problem, right? Number two is like what behaviors and intents? That's where personalization to me comes into place is like what are they doing that allows you to come after them? Did they visit your website? Did they... You know, were, the, were you giving an intent based around a keyword search you're doing? Like, there's all these great tools with intent and knowledge about people because, you know, de-anonymizers are out there everywhere. But like in B2B, for example, for us, you know, you know how we do it? We look at technology adoption. And, you know, like there's a tool called Built With or like a lot of these other tools that tell you like technologies that people are using on their site, right? Well, for us, we know when a technology has changed or how long or the cycle, right? We know everyone signs a one-year contract. So we know in one year we have an opportunity, but not at six months or three months, unless it's a bigger product. We know at one year is the opportunity. So nine months in, we're attacking them. So like that's personalization. You see what I'm trying to say? It's their behavior and intent based around where they are in their business that you can get the data on and then applying that with the right messaging behind that, right? You've got to have good messaging. And here's where messaging fails too. I'm going to talk about it. People write crap messages. Honestly, like I know there's a whole segment of people called copywriters. And I know that every founder operated market thinks they're a copywriter, but let's be real. Most of you guys are not copywriters. You're not. And stop believing that. Hire a better person because that little edge of that little yeah. work that they can put in front of you that you may have not thought about could actually move the needle significantly, especially if you have high enough ACVs, right? So like I look at that content piece as such a crucial piece because if you can't relate to it, I get so much cold email every day from different B2B companies, but they don't relate to me. Dude, don't tell me. If you know anything about me, you know I'm not technical. I don't even have a lick of technical background. Don't tell me about DevOps and, and cloud infrastructure. Like, I have no freaking clue what you're talking about, dude, right? That My CTO probably will, but I guarantee you the way you approached it is not going to work for him either because he cares about the nitty-gritty because he's a CTO, not where he, I might care about the cost savings, right? Figuring out who you're in person on the other end and matching that audience and having the right content with it and testing a lot behind it is really the key to good messaging. That really is. And then- the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I ask for is you got to ask for something. You got to ask for something. And I, I always laugh when people are vague, book a time if you have a time. Like be firm, be confident and ask for whatever that might be. And most times it's a reply or a, a, a message or a content, whatever it might be. I click on a link, whatever it is. But like it's a numbers game and it takes time, right? There's number one, it's a numbers game. And two, personalization is not just writing great emails. That also helps too, but it's really understanding where they are and the behavior and intent of their business. So like, that's it, man. That's, that's, the, that's the key secret to delivering great email and also having email that people want to read and click on. Yeah, I agree. I think even great writers need to learn how to write emails. Uh, I remember this famous quote from Mark Twain when he said that <laughs> he doesn't have time to write uh, a short uh, message. That's why he usually writes a long one. So uh, yeah, it's it's a skill to learn it, you know, to leave only important information because recipients have no time to read long emails. By the way, I know some people who are... Uh, who succeed with long emails as well. So they know the audience. Um, it depends. So if you have the right audience uh, who are expecting to get long emails, yeah, you can do it as well. And 
Jimmy, I want to ask about this uh, word on your T-shirt, uh, "automate," because uh, I, I want to know how to combine manual job and automation. Because yeah, we live in this world where uh, tools can help, you know, to uh, to get better results, faster results, but we still need human touch, you know, to provide this manual job. Can you tell how to find the balance between automation and manual job? <laughs> automation to me is very simple. Uh, doing it once is not a need of an automation. Doing it five times is not a need of automation. When it's a repetitive factor that you don't need to control and you don't need to have oversight on that you can kind of look at it a difference, you should automate it. We do that with everything we do in work, right? We say, okay, if a customer makes a request for this once and it's something we can do by hand, we do it. The second time we start tracking it. The fifth time we start thinking about it. By the 10th time, it better be a tool in the system, right? So automation and business is very simple. If you can find a way and it's and it doesn't require the mind or the brain to make decisions and you can make it do its thing, you should absolutely automate everything. Um, I think that people, especially in this world, in this time with everything and all the tools that are available, you've got to find the right things that you've got to be spending your time on. And often, you know, the biggest problem that I think that founders have often is like, we're usually generally great generalists and great generalists want to get their hands on everything. And though it's not perfect, we know how to do it. And that's something that I always talk about and I always laugh about. And when I think about those things, I, uh, I think about the automation thing because it's like, you know what? Don't just try to do it. Go figure out how to automate. And that's really that's really the theory of my life. And that's what we talk about it quite often in the business. Like, hey, is this a problem? Let's go automate it. Let's go figure it out for now. And let's go ahead and get taken care of. Yeah, nice, nice. Awesome, awesome. Love it, love it. Uh, Jimmy, uh, let's talk about your competition with big companies. You mentioned a few times that you have experience, background with marketing. And when you compete with uh, big companies like MailChimp, I don't know, name them, many well-known big companies. So can you tell your strong side? What kind of benefits can you provide to your customers? Why you're better and why companies and people need to use your tool than uh, other tools that we have today, well-known tools? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is a great conversation that comes in. This is this is what I tell people very simply, right? Like anyone who knows my world of e-commerce, this is how I kind of explain everybody. We we brought the power, the robust power of Clavia with the ease of use of MailChimp, with the support that you're going to receive at somewhere like Attentive and PostScript. And when I say that, and if you're using these tools, it relates really well. But what it really means is very simple. One, it's very easy to use, but it's very robust, but at affordable prices. And we wrap you with insane customer service. There's a million features and products and things that we could do, but the high end is very simple. We save you time, we save you money, and we help you make more money. Those are the three key principles of our product, right? We save you time because we consolidate three of your products. So you're saving, let's say 10, 15 minutes a day, logging in and out of these tools. That's four or five hours a month. That compounds really five to 60 hours a year. Like that compounds, right? We save you money because we're consolidating. We got one platform. We save you money, substantial money, usually often 30, 40% usually. And then, of course, we help you make money because we have more tech, more power than you can do because we, again, unified tech and it gives you more things that you can do that you cannot do today. So we have key differentiators and a lot of the things that I talk about in the space on Twitter and LinkedIn and things like that. I talk about a lot of things that we do because intentionally as the marketer, I develop the product in a way to solve problems that I believe are real problems in the market and real modern marketing, right? I'm not following an old age antiquated playbook. I'm building a new product, the 2.0. And that's what I always think about myself. I think about products like myself in e-commerce or the 2.0s. And what I mean by that is people have carved the base level on the market 
we are now re-evolving that market again. It happens every, every pattern happens in every different niche and vertical. The V1 is not always the winner. V2, V3, V4 sometimes happens before we get it right. And sometimes I think about myself and I think about myself as the V2 often, like we're the newer, better, faster tool and cheaper and better supportive. It's like, why wouldn't you want to change, right? Like that's really where we are at right now as a market. And, you know, that's how we position ourselves because we truly are. I mean, we, we believe we can stand face-to-face -face with our competitors all day long, and we win most of our deals because of it, and we're happy to do that. Nice, nice. Awesome. Uh, if you are building a great tool, I think, you know, yeah. today you need to consider AI. You know, uh, for example, I, I spoke with Jeff Coyle. He is yeah. co-founder of Market Muse, and he told me that in the future we'll have three companies. The first company will develop AI. The second company will implement AI and the third company will be obsolete who can leave the trade. So, uh, and uh, we need it, you know, for example, if I write emails, I need this AI automation to create this message. Of course, I can personalize to edit, to provide this human touch, but it saves so much time. Can you tell how your tool can consider AI, how you use it and how you are going to develop with AI? Yeah, it's actually interesting because, you know, people are in technology kind of often think about this a little bit different. At least I have thought about it a lot different. First of all, we've been doing whatever AI, machine learning, backend, large language, but we've been doing that for years already. We've already mm. been doing that with a lot of our workflows and different things. Here's how I look at AI. I don't think spending the time today to build how to write a subject line or how to write an email content is doing anybody justice. Honestly, we're not doing anyone justice because we're degrading the performance, my humble opinion often, versus a great copywriter, okay? Now, where I do see the future, this is where I am really bullish about it. I think about this mountain. First of all, I don't think AI is fully mature yet by any means. And there's a lot of maturity that we're going to go through and a lot of new technology we're going to have. So I'm sitting back watching, learning. I'm still a student. I'm learning. I'm making sure I'm in it. I've got different things. ChatGPT is always up over here. I use BARD. I use all of them because I need to understand it. But I don't want to build on it yet. And the reason why I don't want to build on it yet, because I don't think we're even close to the application that we're going to be able to produce. Now, for me, on Sendlane, how I think about it. Well, I've got my initial vision and the vision's not changing. It's the unification story, the vision of bringing all the tech stack together under one roof, giving more power. Where I see AI machine learning and everything that comes with all this learning coming into place is once we've accomplished that next vision, what it's gonna allow us to do is take it and optimize it automatically. Optimization is really where I see AI gonna be the most helpful. We're always gonna need that human element to be able to kind of drive and set the foundation, but then you can rely on optimi optimization of AI to help you incremental testing, split testing, trying to figure out how to increase the life cycle speed, and then you can really truly measure it that way as well too. So like, to me, I think that AI is cool and it's really just, you know, I always tell it's very simple. For a marketer, my marketing team, I tell them they should all be using AI, but you're not doing AI to do your job. You're doing it, you're using AI to 10x your speed and output of your job. And what that means is I tell them to do something, go try to use it to help you get the legwork to get you there and then use the human input to finalize it, right? That's a good use of AI, in my opinion. Uh, I think that that's where the market is right now. And that's where as good as the tool sets get. I know that there's a lot of people building towards this and everything, but man, it's really hard to build something that's evolutionizing this fast. It's not easy considering how I know what it is to build software or build anything in the world. Like... longer to build something than it does imagining how fast the world is moving right now well you might be outdated or that problem might be solved before you even get there and that's something that i i think about quite often so it's exciting but again 
a lot of the stuff that's out there now is very like minor, like writing your subject line or writing, like writing your copy. Like that's rudimentary. We don't need a, another software tool, another tech stack to put, put on top of you when you can just go over to ChatGPT and create your own prompt, create your own uh, and set up and then have your own little instance where you can always communicate with it. Right. So like, that's how I think about it, man. And it's probably not the, the, the way that a lot of people might be thinking about, might think about it the same way as I do, but that's where I'm at with it as someone who's been around this world for quite some time and yeah. seen different evolutions occur and different things fall too, right? We've seen plenty of failures of cool new things that were going to be the next hottest thing and the most important things in the world that we don't even <laughs> talk about anymore. Isn't that weird? It's weird, man. It's, it's, it's just hype, man. It's life and hype and social media. That's what I say in these days. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. It's still the beginning of this AI journey. Many things will come. I'm pretty sure that uh, AI will change a lot. But yeah, I can't rely today on AI. I edit a lot with AI because it's a great editing tool. If you fit with the right data, for example, uh, we use a lot of PR. And uh, today I can uh, fit AI with all my copies. And uh, ChatGPT can provide a good job. Edi editing all this text and we got mentioned on cnn forbes many other great resources because ai knows how to edit uh with the style of forbes and cnn it's not because uh, yeah of course we have writers but ai can provide this job even better than these writers and uh, i agree that we don't need to rely but it's interesting but that many people rely a lot on ai and uh, they write headlines, even text. Um, yeah, I think it's a good idea to use it, but uh, of course, uh, just to provide this final touch, you know, to analyze, to edit yourself. I think humans humans still need to be part of the strategy, the overall, like, you know, all the different parts of it. I do think that it will help and it will get better. I mean, I see also, as good as you see people writing content, you see really terrible content come out of people with AI as well too. So. Yeah, you know, I've, seen, I've seen some really bad ones recently and it, it hurts <laughs> when I see it. And I'm like, you know, the, the damages you've done by doing something like this is way more significant than the damage you've done if you did nothing. Right. Yeah. And so it's like sometimes you have to think about both sides of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think great writers can beat AI in one side, but uh, 80% of writers are great. <laughs> okay. Jimmy, I want to ask about uh, scaling. You know, um, you mentioned a lot how to build this tool, how you started your journey, many things. But what about scaling? How are you going to scale your business to compete with these billion-dollar companies, your uh, marketing methods, sales methods, anything that can help to scale? So, you know, scale is such an interesting word because, you know, I'll tell you, uh, people try to force scale quite often. And the answer and what I've learned as I've touched the fire many times in my own journey is you can't force scale. And what I mean by that is very simple. You've got to make sure there's such a strong product market fit occurring around your product because before you can get the scale movement going. And what I mean by that a lot is like, we tried, man. We went off and hired a ton of BDRs we, you know, to call, cold call, cold email, go do the thing, force our way in front of people. And what we learned really quick is there's a very big percentage difference between what a cold outbound outreach non-product market fit conversion rate is versus a true product market fit inbound journey or whatever it might be. It's four or five, six X difference. Like it's huge difference behind it. Now here's the thing. 
And the old school thought about scale, you could go out and hire these BDRs because you can get enough investment to cover the burn to get you to that point to find that product market fit as you're scaling and getting the revenue going. But as I've seen and learned and over the year, and as you already know, the market is hard right now to raise money and you can't run that playbook anymore. That playbook is changing and evolving. And what I've learned a lot when I say I touched the fire is that I look back at the last 12, 18, 20 months of like the money that I have burned because I had more money before. I still have money now, but like I had more money before to go do this playbook. And I look back and I laugh and I go, man, I would have never done that again. What I would have done was to continue on the journey and path that I was already on, to continue to find that product market fit, to get that acceptance, to prove that acceptance is working, to almost feel like you're being drowned by leads before I even think about scale hiring. And what I mean by that is, and anyone who's ever experienced it will know what this means, but like most people have never experienced what this means. It means that you have more deals than you know. Like I always tell this to my leadership team right now, we're walking around in this company with a handful of casino chips that we've won because everyone wants to give us money. We're dropping them everywhere. What does that mean? It means that we have more than we can handle right now. It's a problem, right? But that's what product market fit actually feels like. It feels insane, right? And I and I come to it humbly because I recently experienced this as we've ramped up a lot. And when that feeling happens, now it's time to scale. Now it's time to go invest in the company. Now it's time to do it. And you know what? The thing about it is every company has a different way that they're going to scale. Some are going to have to go scale engineering-wise. Some are going to go scale customer service-wise. Some are going to have to scale at the sales side, right? So like there is no magic formula. The magic formula relates back to where your business actually needs the help to continue to take it to the next level. So my advice very simply is very simple. Don't try to scale unless you know the scale is already there. And I know it's going to, people are going to think, but you're already behind if you're hitting scale and you don't have the people. Reality is we don't have the luxury anymore as founders and people to go raise money right now to go make those chances right now. So you've got to be thinking really smart about it. And the right way to treat it is almost like with a bootstrap mentality a bit and really making sure that you're thinking about it. I started this company. My last two companies are bootstrapped. We didn't hire until we had the money, until we physically had the money in the, in the box. You've got to treat it that way, more or less this way with getting to product market fit and getting one or two customers, not product 10, not product market, not hundred even. I'm talking getting the flow moving and you've got more leads and more things that then you can deal with. Then you've got product market fit. And when that starts to occur feel within the company, then it's time to step on the gas. Then it's time to spend, but still be responsible because I've also seen companies hire with great product market fit and over hire. And then they kill themselves out of product market fit because their people are unable to translate the messaging and the words and the information that's being go given out in into the world, right? So there's a lot of that thought process as well too, which is crazy. And that's a bigger thought process. So that's my advice when it comes to scale. Nice, nice. Yeah, you remind me of Elon Musk. Yeah, he uh, shared something like this, you know, many times that it's better to build high quality product. And when companies spend a lot of, money with marketing and sales without having these great products. Um, yeah, it's not a good idea. But one thing, it's not related your points with Elon Musk because Elon Musk, uh, you know, it's interesting when he uh, bought Twitter, he uh, quit uh, remote job on Twitter. <laughs> so yeah. everyone needs to, to get back to the office and fired 75 or 80% of uh, all people there. But, you know, but you have this uh, remote environment. Can you tell how to handle them? How uh, to 
check out, control, manage people because they can pretend to work in something else or many other things or uh, just spend time, enjoy, but don't work, just pretend to do it. So can you tell your methods how to handle people remotely and how to encourage them to go ahead? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put everyone in an uncomfortable position right now, okay? It's performance, yeah. man. Measure everyone, everyone. Mm -hmm. And you've got to have real KPIs behind everyone and real performance numbers behind everyone. And they need to know that they're being measured on those performance. Look, you're 100% right. Remote is a different environment. And people who've never worked remote are, can struggle within this. But if you can give a clear guideline of your expectations and what you expect out of that employee and how they're contributing to the company, obviously doing it in a nice way and not doing it in a way where it's like dictatorship, but like being able to understand what is your responsibility and what is your output and what we're measuring you on, on a trackable number. Everyone can be trackable at some level. You need to track it and you need to let them know and you need to make decisions around those as well too. And so what I mean by that, it comes with the difficult decision-making that you look as founders or owners or entrepreneurs. Often we all know who's not carrying their weight inside of our department. Here's the reality of things. You can't let that happen. You've got to either fix it or you got to move them on. And I think that comes with a little bit of harsher reality that you got to treat it a little bit more cutthroat than you typically might in an office environment. But the reality is, again, it's different. You've got to realize that because you don't know what people are doing. And if people are not doing it, it's just as it can be just as detrimental. And the same thing comes with culture, toxicity, uh, you know, different people and all that come into play together ultimately. But yeah, man, performance is really the key. It's you got to measure them. You got to tell them about it. And if they don't meet those goals, you got to make the yeah. tough decision pretty quickly behind it as well, too. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, Jimmy, let's talk about mistakes. You know, I, I made a lot of mistakes. Some of them terrible. <laughs> I, I literally lost uh, my first business in 2008 when the whole crisis destroyed my financial company. It happened, but uh, I got experience how to overcome all these obstacles. Uh, and uh, I know two mistakes. Uh, the first mistake you can avoid by learning from others and mistakes that you need to do uh, to learn from your uh, own failure to go ahead. So can you list mistakes that companies can avoid today? You know, you know, it's, it, that's such a great question because I look at it, dude, I make so many mistakes all the time, mistake central, like everywhere. Right. I look at it. Well, I'll just kind of go through. So what mistakes can I make right now that I can tell people to not do as I think about it? Well, my biggest mistake I would say was people. It's always hiring at the end of the day. A lot of yeah. these decisions that we had, right? So there's two different mistakes that happen. One to overhire. And then the, the other one is the the, the under hire. I'm going to go both ways, actually. All right. So I'm going to start with the under hire because this is a mistake that I've made often that I've stopped myself now making. And I think that people can do it. Pay people, pay the money for the value of work you want. And what I mean by that is very simple. I know there's this really, I'm sorry about that as a dog. I know there's a really scrappy uh, little guy that really, you know, he's going to give it all his energy and he's really, you know, he just came out of college. He's great. He's cheap. And we hire him because we think that we think that, sorry, let me, hey, uh, and we, we think that this person is going to be, uh, Jesus, hold on. Hey, Rocky, one second, one second. I'm going to pause. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we often think like, oh, we've got, yeah, you've got a dog too. Yeah. We, we all have yeah. the dogs that, you know, they bark. Anyways, uh, uh, what's that called again? So we, we hire people sometimes because we think, we think 
that, you know, whatever that might reason be scrappy, cost money, whatever, to fill a role that we probably should have hired better for. So the under hire is one of the major mistakes that we make. It's not about that. Find people that you need and pay people for it and or don't hire that role. You're going to do worse if you do it. Then we go to the overhire. And the overhire is the fancy logo chasing, the people who have big experience at companies that you really want to be, but you're not. And people who have wrote only great brands or only had great experience. I've learned both sides to touch the fire. And when I talk about both of these, I, I say you can control and you can't uncontrol it. Look, I sit here and I've read all this advice from different people, great people. Like Jason Lemkin at Saster is one of the people I love watching, reading, learning about SaaS, for example, right? He talks about a lot of this stuff in different ways, but even as an entrepreneur, I hear it and then I still go touch the fire a bit. So I go hire the guy that, you know, has all this great experience at the greatest brands and stuff like that. And he comes over and they flop. Why? Well, they don't have the brand behind them. They're actually mediocre. They were just using the brand to peg them up. Or you do the oh, under hire. You hire the person that you're, I'm going to give this person a chance. This person's really fighting for it. But they have no idea what to do. And suddenly you learn that you're just teaching them. The problem is, as a great entrepreneur and a great founder, is like you want to make sure you're bringing people that are going to teach you how to elevate because your superpower is ingesting everybody else's learnings, taking it under you to make you a better person for your next business, right? That's what I look at. And so when I think about the underhire and overhire, those are probably my two mistakes, the polar mistakes that I think about that you both are going to probably ignore, but you're still going to have to go touch the fire to learn it maybe once, twice, four times, and you're going to have to go figure it out. But it's the same thing that I've learned. And now I've realized you pay the people the value that you want to the work that you want, and you expect them to put that work out or you move on or you go find someone else who can do it, right? Like that's again, the reality yeah. of life. I mean, that's the way you have to think about it. And it sounds a little harsh sometimes when if it, but the reality is if a person oversells themselves and they can't accomplish the work, that was on them for overselling themselves, right? If the person oversells them and the work is really easy, great. Then you paid them for what they are. And if they help you continue to make the company, they, they become a superstar within the company. Nice. I think that's, yeah. that's really the thought process I have. And too many people out there are overselling themselves. I'll tell you that right now. And that has caused problems for me as someone who's touched the fire many times. And it's just part of life. It's it's the hardest thing, people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, uh, I remember Gary V uh, shared about that. He's good with firing, not hiring. <laughs> he hires almost everyone, but he's good with firing them if they he can't get results. So, yep. yeah. It's part sure. of the business. Okay, uh, Jimmy, uh, you know, uh, I found that I usually get high results with, cluster, uh, with customers who understand SEO. So if they understand, we can cooperate like, you know, like a cohesive team. We, can, we know why we need to create high quality content, what kind of content to create. Uh, we know why we need, it's important to get traffic value than just to get more traffic, many things. Uh, if my customers don't understand, I usually tell them, take my course, learn from Lily Ray, Jeff Coyle, Mike Phillips, Chelsea, all these many great experts. Uh, go to YouTube, Google, just learn. Get the basic. Uh, let's imagine you started today from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills. It's your first day. You're still in Korea. So what will you do today to start completely from scratch? I'd go actually do the same things I did before, which is just go learn. I mean, the internet, dude. The internet is a collection of everything and anything that you'll ever need to learn. I, I promise you, the only thing that's great about courses or buying courses, for example, is that people have done the research and all the hard work for you and you are kind of skipping the hard work research by yourself. 
But if I were to go back and start, and I always think about this because like, you know, there will be a day that I need to start my next thing. I obviously have a billion ideas in my head of what I would want to start. That's, that's easy. But what would I start? I, I go back and say, I'd go research. I'd go learn. I think people jump in. It's important to jump in. It's important to find balance between jumping in and also doing the research to understand the market, understanding who you need to go after and what you're trying to build at the same time. So to go learn, guess what? There's a lot of great people that put a lot of great content, just like this podcast or a, a lot of great people out in the market. Dude, everyone's spewing information, everyone. How you take it, how you approach it, and how you execute it is really the end of story. So like that's really where you have to go spend time. So I don't think I'd have anything magical here, man. I, my magical answer is just go learn. The internet's the greatest thing in the world. And I don't know what I would be doing in my life if the internet didn't exist and how great the internet is for the world, in my opinion. And bad yeah, too, yeah. but it's great, you know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, love it, love it. And Jimmy, my final question about the future. You know, uh, I often hear that email is that, SEO is that, many things are that. So uh, people can bury many things but uh, we still have email i use every single day i open my email a few times a day to check out these emails to reply i love this tool and i think yeah it's uh, today it works uh, so good you know yeah not bad can you tell what kind of future will be in email marketing in email specifically because many things are coming i don't know augmented reality virtual reality we have ai so yeah any prediction about the future? <laughs> so my prediction goes kind of like what we've seen in the patterns, right? And what I mean by patterns is very simple. Each generation had their technology, right? Gen X, millennials, email, maybe a little SMS, still pretty heavy on telephone, for example. Baby boomers still love the telephone, for example, right? They still like direct mail. And then you got a little bit newer, and a lot of them more like text messaging, right? But now I can say the youngest generation is not even on text messaging. They're DMing on Instagram or YouTube and different places, right? They are changing. So it all comes back to one thing. Who is your market? Who am I selling to? And that's the channels that I need to be on, right? If I'm selling to a really young generation, I'm probably spending most of my time on social media. I'm selling IG. I'm on WhatsApp. I'm on Telegram. Those are the places they want to be. Discord, right? But then if I'm selling to a larger, older business demographic, I'm still probably hitting the phone call still and sending physical mail out to those people. So it's not an answer of like, is the market dying? It all goes back to the initial relevance of audience. Who is the person you want to sell to? And that person, you need to be there. This is where I always laugh with like the younger generation often is like, I want to be in B2B sales. And I'm an SDR. Or I'm a BDR. Well, guess where the decision makers are? They're older generation. Just naturally, this is just what happens. They're in their 40s and 50s. They're like me. I'm in my 40s, right? Guess what I still do all the time? I grab my telephone and I answer phone calls. But you know what I don't do a lot of? Respond to my email or look at my text as much. But I do love phone calls still. The reality is that's where I am. And guess what? I am the buyer. So where do you have to be? And that's the answer, in my opinion. The answer is you always have to be where your audience is. And if we've seen patterns in anything in pattern in life, we know that direct mail may be dead, but it's not. It's actually still probably a relevant 10 to 20% of the audience in the market right now. Same thing with email, still the number one driver of revenue. I can show you that on tons of data, number one driver of revenue. And, and all our businesses, the 52,000 businesses that we serve, I can show you email versus SMS. Email is still the number one driver, right? And then you take, and then you take the next step step of it is like looking into the future and looking at that young generation and saying, well, where are they spending all their time? They're surely not spending on email or SMS at this point anymore. They're actually over on the Instagram or uh, Twitter or Threads or any of these other new tools. Yeah. They're on those. I and guess what? If that's who your market is, guess where you need to sell? 
there. Nice. That's how you communicate. And that's the key right there. I don't think that any channel will ever die. I think versatility of the channels and the opening of those channels is occurring right now. And you need to be where your audience is. And that's really the honest answer. Everything else is just marketing noise. Nice. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, marketers on TV and radio didn't lose their jobs. They adapted to digital and we still have, still have mail marketing. And uh, I think everyone, everything has the end, including email marketing. But it takes time to change habits. I don't know how long does it take. Uh, I remember when Jeff Bezos said that Amazon will be bankrupt one day. Yeah, because uh, it's uh, evolution. Many companies will come, but it doesn't mean it happens yesterday, uh, tomorrow or uh, uh, in a few months. It takes time, probably decades, even even more than decades. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Jimmy, it's a big pleasure to get on my show, to learn from you. I love all this valuable insights. Tell the best way how to keep learning from you, how to reach out to you, how to follow you. Yeah, um, two places. I live on, mm, I would say more in one place, but two places. Twitter. Yeah, I've got it on my little name thing. Yo, Jimmy Kim. You can find me there. I tweet all the time and I tweet all sorts of things. And uh, the other place is on LinkedIn as well, too. Jimmy Kim on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Please follow me. Uh, I share lots of content. I share information. I talk about things all the time and I'm pretty transparent about it. So uh, follow me there. That's usually where you can find me. You can DM me. If you want to pitch me, pitch me. Please just be direct about it and tell me what you're selling and don't try to skirt around. But I'm always open. I know there's a lot of people listening to this. It's okay. Tell me, man, I'm a sales guy. Tell me what you sell, but you got 30 seconds, man. And if you can do it in 30 seconds, you're, I'm happy to read it and think about it. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I follow you on LinkedIn. I'm going to follow on Twitter guys. I recommend to anyone to follow Jimmy because you can see a lot of valuable insights. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. A big pleasure. Welcome back anytime to share more valuable insights. Guys, you can find all links in the description below. Listen to us on Apple, Google, Spotify, and see you next time. Thanks for listening to this entire podcast. Please rank your experience in Apple, Spotify, Google, or any other platforms that you may use. Also, please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift. We'll see you soon on other valuable audio podcasts.